Welcome again to Rises from Spain. This is Elena, your hostess, that is here again. A lot of time has passed, but luckily we are back with an amazing guest. But before introducing the guest, let me remind you that I have an email added that is horizonsfromspain at gmail.com. And remember that Horizons from Spain is not a podcast that is part of SpanishFear.com. You know, your Spanish horror feat. So, for today, I have a very special guest. His name is Nicolas Schegel. I think I pronounce it well. Welcome, Nicolas, to the show. Thank you, Elena. It's, uh, it's a very great pleasure to be here with you. Nicolas is our guest because he has written an amazing book about Spanish horror that is called Sex, Sadism, Spain and Cinema. The Spanish horror film. Um, welcome to the show and thanks for this amazing book you have just published. Well, thank you, thank you. That's quite an introduction. I'm I'm very flattered and humbled to be a part of your show, and want to thank you for inviting me on to discuss it. Uh, it's it was uh, the result of you know uh, a lifelong love affair really with with both your country. And with cinema, so I put the two together and came up with <laughs> came up with the uh, with the book. Why have you chosen Spanish horror as your main topic? Well, it was that's a great question, um, and it, it, it stems primarily, Elena, from from graduate school here in in uh, in Detroit, Michigan. I'm I'm uh, I teach at a university called Wayne State University, which is which is where I also. Uh, was working on my PhD and one of the first things as you know that you have to do is sort of stake a claim an intellectual claim um, for you to do your scholarship and research mm -hmm. and you're always trying to fill a hole or a gap somewhere because in the last well 30 to 40 years especially in the last 15 to 20 there are not a whole lot of topics that have been unexplored after you know US horror and you know English horror and then later Italian horror were pretty were mined pretty thoroughly um, you, there was you know not a lot of places left to go and so I as a as a person who used to travel to Spain growing up um, and as 
as horror is my favorite genre, I became attracted to these films quite some time ago. And in the mid-2000s, when I needed to claim a topic to write about, I spoke with my advisors about, look, you know, a lot has been written about, too much has been written about American and British horror, and lately Italian horror, but um, nobody's writing about Spanish horror. And people would look at me and be like, what do you mean Spanish horror? And I, like Mexican horror? I said, no, although Mexico has a, had a thriving horror film industry, I'm talking about, just, you know, Spain. And they kind of were very dumbfounded. They didn't know what I was referring to. They just assumed that Spain had always been making horror films, you know. <laughs> that, and, uh, and I explained the situation to them, and they said, oh, well, if nobody's been writing about this in English, yes, by all means, claim it, pursue it. And the first thing I did was really start to do research about what had been written. And pretty much at that time, in the 2005, 2006, mostly what you could find were only things written by, uh, by Spaniards on the subject. And that, that brought me in touch with Carlos Aguilar, who you know is a prolific author, uh, and, and right there in Madrid. And he and I became fast friends, and I arranged to travel to Madrid to do, to do research. And that's sort of like the beginnings of the book was, I needed a topic, so I married my, my, my love for Spain and my love for cinema together into a topic that, frankly, had not been uh, discussed almost at all in English. And when it was discussed in English, it was often, I think, unfairly maligned or mistreated or criticized. Um, um, one thing I have to say thanks to you is because you highlight the beginning of uh, horror in Spain. Okay, not the beginning, but you you show as a kind of uh, you know turning point to horror. Uh, yes, um, the audience we are uh, is going to listen to the thunder. <laughs> Because now, now the whole summer without raining in Madrid, and today we have a beautiful storm. <laughs> oh wow! Okay. So this is becoming really obscure, you know. Oh gosh! I hope I can hear it in the speakers. <laughs> okay, so because you start talking about uh, Goya and the score or the dark, let's say the dark paintings. Um, There are some critics, uh, Spanish horror critics or cinema critics in general, that um, have been always saying that uh, horror or fantasy hasn't existed in Spanish literature or in Spanish paintings. But, for example, Goya is a great example that this is not true. Um, what did you see in the Goya, in the dark paintings of Goya? Yeah, well, that's great because, I mean, um, I, I'm, I'm familiar with this argument uh, regarding Goya. And, and in general, you know, I would agree that Spain, unlike, say, Russia or the United States, particularly New England in the early colonial area, and especially Britain and Italy, they have a much more Gothic tradition to draw upon. Uh, and, and Spain, of course, you know, did not have quite this Gothic tradition to draw upon in terms of, well, what types of horror stories do we want to say? So, uh, but the deeper I dug, the more, and, and just being familiar with Spain in general, having, having gone there since I was a child, obviously there's a tremendous Gothic architectural influence in many cities in Spain. Uh, and so the sort of Romanesque and Gothic uh, influence can be felt there. But the question is, where is 
doesn't exist in the arts, in the literature, in the paintings of the time, and, and there is less of a Gothic influence. However, this doesn't mean that any nation doesn't have dark, dark pages in their history. And of course, Spain was a country that, like any predominant European, Western European country, was had much conflict. And I think that conflict was very much, uh, you can see it in the works of people like Goya, for example. And with, with Goya, I think that the madness, not his own madness, because that's another point that many people debate. I don't think Goya was, was, was mad. I think Goya, in terms of crazy, I think Goya was mad and, and disappointed and disgusted <laughs> with, with the society around him in Madrid at the time. And this was a criticism you could see, I think, in, in his work. And so when I say, uh, when I start the book with the epigraph of Goya, I find that if, if I look not even too hard, that I can see the disfigurements and the grotesqueries that I see in Goya's work, I can see matched on the cinema screens in some of the works like, uh, well, um, I talk about it in the book, for example. Like, for me, um, some of the how should I say it, the um, color palettes that I see associated with these films remind me very much of the of the Goya color palette. And beyond that, films like, like Jorobado, like for The Hunchback of the Morgue, for example, to me is has a tremendous amount of Goya-esque influence um, embedded in it. It's just I think we have to to scratch a bit deeper to, to see the, the, um, the, the, that the analog is there. Uh, I, I'm well aware that, uh, for example, in my interviews with Eugenio Martin, discussions about um, where can where can we draw upon dark Gothic tales in Spain when we have a bright sun all the time? And I said, but that's the beauty of it. I said, in your films as well as others, I start to th- I start to see things that are like culturally endemic to Spain being um, put on the screen. You know, like Quién puede matar a un niño or um, with, you know, Who Can Kill a Child, for example, or his own Una Bella para el Diablo, I think mm-hmm. is a great example where you have the, uh, the tourist backlash, you see, <laughs> in those films, which is fascinating. And that's, I think, when Spain is starting to do things that are less about Goya and less about, uh, you know, its own history, but more about the present day. So I guess, Elena, what I'm trying to say in the book is that I see in the beginning for Spain with these horror films a, a mindsis, an imitation of, of popular European and American tropes and conventions with the horror film. But then I start to see a, a, a more confident and more um, interesting horror films being made that are in fact relevant to the culture that produced them and no longer just imitating other countries for profit, you know. Mm-hmm. No, that's very, very interesting for sure. Uh, now, I want to ask you another... Well, I'm going from one <laughs> topic to the other. But um, I want to ask you about Miro's law. It's a law that happened in the in the 80s. I'm not a, a lawyer, so I don't understand a lot uh, about laws. But uh, Miro's law has been, you know, found guilty by some people um, has been found to be responsible of the lack of uh, horror movies during the, the 80s, you know, the the decay or the low years, <laughs> let's say. But, for example, 
I think, okay, Miroslo could be responsible of this change, but also I, I, I find that uh, the change of liking is responsible of that because after Franco's death, you know, uh, people, the same as it happened in literature, people wanted to know more about politics, about social issues, and, and so, so maybe fantasy was put away from that, I think, because of the audience. Do you think uh, Miro's Law is, is totally responsible of the lack of, uh, you know, movie making during those days? Yes, I, I, I you know, the, the more I read about Pilar Miro, the, I, I respected her greatly. Um, but I think it was unfortunate timing. And I think that she was faced with a almost impossible task of of trying to you know nationalize the cinema but at the same time not try to be too protectionist in, in, in the practices but I, I fear that that's ex exactly what happened almost because the the pendulum just swang, swung too far from one extreme to the other and uh, it did seem very much like the death knell for the Destapes and the, the Spaghetti Westerns and, of course, the horror films, which which I do think is an unfortunate byproduct uh, of this cry for more human stories. Um, I think it was a almost a, an inevitable necessity under the new democracy and the transition that this was going to happen. But I never expected the axe to come down so hard and so cleanly on the so-called low genres of the Western horror film and the Iberian sex comedy. And I think it's very sad fact that these films helped kept Spain um, competitive in the international market and kept them kept the workforce employed, the directors and actors working. And then immediately these people were finding very difficult time finding new work In, under the new uh, director general, under Miro. So, it, for me, it was, um, an, uh, as I read about it, mind you, I mean, I'm not, a, I'm, I, uh, this is a part of, of the, the book that I would have loved to have written more about, but it, uh, it almost seemed like this was the logical end point for my, my examination of the Spanish court. But it seemed like almost what was going to happen at that point, I don't know, but this is what happened, and um, I'd be curious to get your reaction to it as well. This is this is pretty much my reading of it. Mm -hmm. um, um, well, I have to tell you that um, your introduction to historical settings, to historical events, not only that, about, uh, you know, economy, social issues, and everything that you... You have in the book is one of the best ones I've ever read, you know. <laughs> Thank you. And I was very impressed that uh, a, a person that is not uh, Spanish could have uh, done something so great about our culture, you know, because sometimes when you are going to try, uh, you are trying to, to tell um, about something you are not part of. I mean, for example, I know about all this background because I grew up. <laughs> yeah. uh, but, uh, for example, in your case, uh, you are not from here, you don't have the background, 
but uh, I think you, you, yours is one of the best ones I one of the best settings I've ever read about this um, well, let me thank you for, <laughs> first and foremost thank you for that Elena that you know after you finish a book you live in a kind of uh, vacuum a space vacuum because you're waiting for feedback I knew I knew I had I knew that my friend Carlos you know Aguilar was a was a big fan and of course he helped facilitate much of my research but you're sitting waiting for somebody to say something and and when you tell me that you think that it was a, a, a fair and representative and, and close examination I'm I couldn't be more happy of course when I'm writing a history for us for a country that I I'm not a citizen of I tried to be very 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 careful uh, and try to be, you know, neutral or objective, unless, of course, I was registering my opinion on the aesthetics of something, you know. Then, of course, uh, I, I, I might engage in, in, in uh, what they call value judgment. But apart from when it came to writing history, I tried to be, you know, as objective as possible and bring in authorities, people who were uh, more well-versed on uh, Spanish culture and history than I am, uh, and cite them in the book as authorities, but then also as someone who, as as I'll tell listeners right now, as I was uh, traveling to Spain from 1972 when I was two years old to well present days, and it's you know it's my favorite place in the world. <laughs> so so I tried to inject that uh, that passion uh, into the book. Um, well, and apart from this, I have to tell you that I don't agree too much with um, kind of uh, interpretation you made about Horace Press. Ah. <laughs> good, good. Yeah. <laughs> because you said that Horace Press is a kind of allegory about Franco's, you know, polit policies. And so the creature representing the dictator and so on. And, I cannot, maybe it's true, I don't know, but I, I, I um, for example, I can see the political, the political traces in the, a candle for, for the devil, but for example, uh, if we talk about horse press, I cannot see it. No, no, and here's the thing, that's, it's, yeah, I, you know, I, when I wrote, when I wrote that, um, I was trying to be bold, and I, of course, I had, you know, spoken with the director, and and I had mentioned to him that I thought, this, you know, uh, my my idea regarding this, and of course, Eugenio was like, he didn't discount the idea. He said naturally it wasn't something that was um, conscious, you know, that and and uh, and I said, but of course, that's that is the argument with psychoanalytic film. You know, theory is that uh, you know you are you are being driven by un your unconscious to 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 say these things. So it's it's meant to be Elena a, a provocative uh, um, reading of the film. It's what's funny about it is that the more that you you scratch the surface of that film, and I start to talk about the fact that I think that history is 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 what's stalking the train not just some sort of alien force, which is a kind of tired old cliche, but that, um, that when I started to look at the, the film within the microcosm of the Spanish Civil War and the fact that I see the, the aggregate horror boom in Spain as part of or a function of, of the Spanish Civil War, um, just not explicitly so, 
it started to it, it started to gel in my mind and the more I wrote it the more I, I became interested in it and I showed it to some friends to see if it was show and, and I don't know the word in Spanish but in English they call it you know intersubjective meaning mm -hmm. can, I, can I get my colleagues to agree with me and they did they thought not only that they thought not only is, do we agree but we thought that's a very you know it's provocative and interesting and and whether it's true who can say right I'm not suggesting that that's how it should be read, but it seems to me that it's a plausible, possible reading of the film, and I did my best to, to make that argument. Uh, in, in fact, going so far as to say that the, the creature itself might be allegory for Franco, for his cunning uh, and, and his ability to stay in power and to sort of brainwash uh, a constituency of people in the microcosm of the train. <laughs> Okay, okay, I will take it again then. <laughs> no, no, look, and I'm not in you know, I don't expect everybody to, to agree with it. I just like to get the discussion going. I think it's fun, you know, and, and of course, I love this movie so much. This is one of my all-time favorites from when I was a little boy. So, um, now, you are covering uh, your essentials that are just Franco, Paul Nazi, Uh, you are also talking about Osorio, you talk about Jorge Grau, let me check if I'm missing someone. <laughs> you, also, you also talk about, for example, movies like uh, La Mansión de la Niebla, I cannot remember the title in English now. Oh, it's a, it has been, by the way, for all the listeners out there, I would like to say that in almost every case, The Spanish title of the film is a much more elegant and proper title, and that the American titles, met, often there were three or four different ones, are usually very stupid um, and insipid and just ridiculous. And I always love the Spanish titles. The only time I, I prefer uh, the e, American title is for House of Psychotic Women, which mm -hmm. is you know, it, it, just because I think it's funny. But um, uh, it, it's it's kind of silly and it's funny and, and and I think it's so silly and so funny that I, I like it because I it kind of uh, as a joke. But I'm sorry, you were saying um, yeah um, uh, the types of directors and actors that I'm covering. Um, and I'm missing someone, you know, because uh, especially when you talk about La Mansión de la Niebla, you talk about uh, lack, well, not lack, but almost lack of uh, Spanish yali. And in this case, and also because the title of your book is Sex, Sadism, I'm missing the, a little talking about Eloy de la Iglesia. You know, oh, yes, yeah, so I would look Cannibal, love Cannibal Man, Nadie la oyó gritar, etc. Yes, of course. These, it's sad that, that um, I had a page... Some people were wondering why the book isn't longer. Well, of course, I had a page limit. Oh, didn't yes. know. Yes, because it's a monograph. It's, it's, uh, it, it's, it cannot be over a certain amount of pages. So I had to subtract a lot from the, um, from the, 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 the book and put it into what I consider to be the second edition if, I'm, if, I, if I get around to doing it. Eloy de Iglesia would certainly be included in that, as well as many other filmmakers whom I only gesture to or don't discuss at all. So I thought if this was the only book I was going to write on the subject, um, 
I took almost a populist standpoint by hitting, I guess what you'd call the greatest hits. Although you're right, there are a couple of choices that are in there that you know, I did actually have to to like you know reject certain ones and say, well, I'm not going to write about this one. But I, it was in, a, in a, it was primarily that was in the last chapter, chapter four, where I say suggestions for you know for further commentary, and we I discussed ten films. And I had like 20, um, mm-hmm. and I was doing about 1,500 words on each, but I had in my contract, you know, that I had to deliver a book around 225 pages. So I, I had to take away a lot, and it, then it became a question of just prioritizing. Mm-hmm. And I did want, you know, I did want Los Ojos Azules and then I did want uh, a, a Bell from Hell very mm-hmm. much so because La Campana del Fierno is one of my, is I think a masterpiece. Mm-hmm. And um, Las Guerras de Lorelai, for example, is a film that um, I just think is beautiful to look at and it's kind of fun. So mm-hmm. I put that in there because I thought this was a fun film. It's kind of a silly film. Helga Lene is in her 40s and is, is just is so stunning and such a presence in that film. Uh, Ultimo Deseo, same thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was. It, it became kind of my criteria for selecting those films was um, wh- what do I, if I only get one chance at this, Elena, which are the films I want to talk about the most? And so, sadly, yeah, certain films and certain filmmakers were not discussed like uh, Pedro Olea and, and Eloy de Iglesia and, 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 and many, many others, mm-hmm. sadly. Yeah, yeah, it, I was just wondering why. I'm a total fan of Eloy de la Iglesia, and every time... Okay, the more I watch by him, the more I like, <laughs> you know? And And I was just wondering, yes... Um, it was not a, a conscious decision to, to not include them. It was a question of what could I include with the space. And I knew that I wanted to end with El Puerto del Frances because it's, the, it's 1977, so mm-hmm. it's the, basically the last year I'm covering. And I think that's an incredible film, too. Yeah, yeah, for sure, for sure. Um, um, I also wanted to ask you about uh, the bibliography. Because I'm, you know, <laughs> I'm crazy about <laughs> bibliographies. Sure. <laughs> But I, I was checking. I don't know when uh, you finished the the book, but I have seen that uh, in order to to check your your themes, your topic, your issues, you basically use two Spanish authors. One is Carlos Aguilar. That is a uh, an okay critic. I don't agree with him sometimes. And the other one is Romero. Sorry, I don't remember the, the name now. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I'm, I'm, I was missing uh, other books. Uh, I mean, for example, there is uh, a great book that is called Silencios de Pánico that was uh, written by Diego López, the man from El Buque Maldito Fanzín, and also from Sitges, um, also written by David Pizarro. Um, also, I'm missing a book that is uh, that became essential to, to Spanish horror last year, that is called La Década de Oro del Cine Español, written by Javier Pulido. Javier Pulido was a guest also on the show last year. 
Um, I was wondering if uh, when you finished the book, uh, these books weren't published or what happened? I, yeah, I, I want to write these down or I'm going to get them from you, Elena, after the podcast. Uh, so when I began, I don't know these books uh, and that's probably why they're not, they're not discussed. Uh, when I started working on this in 2005, there, uh, to my knowledge, there was very little on the subject uh, and, and, and nothing in English. Mm-hmm. Um, no, no volume length study done in English. Of course, my friend Antonio um, wrote one in 2012. Uh, we were sort of working on our projects at the same time. Interestingly, um, uh, he, he and I, though we talk about the same subject, we had completely different approaches. And that's very interesting because we didn't know each other then. We do now. In fact, I've, I've just collaborated with him on a, a book on Jess Franco, mm-hmm. uh, an academic study of his work. Uh, and I wrote about Jess's uh, crimmies, his, his, his uh, German crimmies. I wrote about um, um, uh, the uh, Death Avenger of Soho and The Devil Came from Akasaba. And so um, I did not know the books that you were written. I don't know if they were out then. In 2005, six, seven, when I was doing my original research and when I traveled to Madrid in 2008, um, I was depending on Carlos primarily to guide me towards the things written in Spanish at that time. Uh, and then I, I, was, I was also depending upon for the economics, the cultural, the social, political on, on books that had, that had been written in English uh, from basically all over the world, from, different, from, from, from Spanish authors and historians, from English, from German, from Lithuanian, from, you know, from, from basically all over the world try and get an aggregate view uh, um, on the history. But the two books that you mentioned, I do not know. I'm not familiar with them. And uh, obviously it sounds like I should be. And um, so my, my opinions and my history were formed primarily just from the films themselves and from doing independent research on, on the history. So if you would be so kind as to... to um, as to send those to me, the, the information, I would gladly take a look at them. So I don't know when they were released. Um, the, the majority of my research was done between 2008 mm-hmm. to the, and 2009, I guess, two years. And then the writing of the dissertation started in 2010, finished in 2011. The project sat for a year, and then I came back to it in 2000, late 2012, by writing a book proposal and I sent the proposal out and was accepted to uh, two publishers uh, and I, the one that I wanted was one of them, Roman. Mm-hmm. So I agreed with them and then I took about 50%, 60% of the dissertation and killed it, just destroyed it because it wasn't for really public consumption. Mm-hmm. You know, it's very dry, academic. Yeah. And then I And then I added about 50 to 60% of new material. Mm-hmm. Um, and so this is, this, this is the history and the timeline of the writing. So I, I don't know these books, and I, I'm, I'm depending on you to, to tell me more. I will. I will. Also, let me tell the audience that uh, now that we are going, that we are talking about books, about the Spanish horror, uh, I heard the other day that another book about the topic is going to be published that is called Cine Fantástico y de Terror Español. From the origins to the golden age, uh, it goes from 1912 to 1983. Um, it's uh, it's no English friendly, Estefa. 
Um, it has been coordinated by Ruben Igueras and it is composed of different articles written by different people. People I think that uh, write in the correct way, others I don't like, but <laughs> I, I, I think it's 40 it, uh, different authors. I Spanish fear, I saw the, uh, I saw the book cover and, and read your, your notice on, the, on your website. Yeah, that's uh, for, for the information of, of the audience. Um, also, um, for people uh, that is interested, you know, in uh, this Spanish horror, we cannot forget that this, uh, there are two different documentaries. One uh, that I don't like too much that is called Queridos Monstros, uh, like the Are Monsters, directed by the Prada Brothers. And that talks about the story of the Spanish horror. The problem with this documentary is that it's a total mess. We don't know what they are talking about. <laughs> yeah, it's different quotations from people like Paco Plaza or Jess Franco, Lina Romay. You know, people, Jose Luis Alemán is also there, talking about things, but uh, I didn't get what they were talking about. Uh, it's a Spanish horror, but... <laughs> so, but there is another interesting documentary. Uh, okay, it's not a very deep documentary about the, the topic, but, um, you know, I know it's 101, what you Americans call 101 Spanish horror <laughs> for beginners, <laughs> that is called Clowing, A Journey Through Spanish Horror, that is directed by Victor Matellano. That yes, no, this, I haven't seen it, though, but I'd like to get a copy of it. Yeah, it's an amazing, it's an amazing documentary. I hope it will be published, uh, you know, soon in the United States because it's, it's interesting. You know, it's a kind of one on one, you know, for people who wants to to start into into Spanish I've, horror. I've seen production stills from it, and and I admire Victor. I enjoy, I've enjoyed very much what he's done, and I've enjoyed his his foray into well into fe into feature, you know, with with wax mm -hmm. and. Um, I I, I I was very interested in seeing the film. It's just yeah, it's 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 hard to come by. Yeah, and, yeah. Um, and you know the problem, Elena, was here in the United States. There was just so few sources. Um, Ten years ago, when I started working on this, uh, everything, whatever that was there, was predominantly done by the the initial explorers in the genre, people like mm -hmm. Aguilar, and um, and so Carlos gave you know f was kind enough to give me copies of his books. Mm -hmm. and Romero's um, uh, uh, anthology, you know, the, the Spanish horror anthology, the anthology, yeah. the, the this was probably my Bible uh, in the <laughs> beginning because, um, first of all, I could understand 75% of everything that was written in there, and it gave me such a concise um, timeline mm -hmm. and it's a concise canon of films to work from and not only that but the production details in terms of like you know it was basically in the beginning of my own book I say that the data that I use is is cultivated primarily from uh, Javier Romero's uh, you know um, uh, uh, anthology of, um, of Spanish cinema um, from I, I forget the years but uh, it, my, the book is in, is in the other room and that's very hard uh book to get these days, I think. It was, uh, was, a, yeah. was a, it's, it's, Production numbers are gone, and uh, of course it was, it was Carlos who gave me a, a, a copy of it, which was lovely, and, and that book, and in particular Javier contributed images to the book. <laughs> we promised to have many, you know, or something when I come to Bilbao next time, so. 
Bella Noche. Let me let me explain to the audience that Pacharan is a Spanish liqueur <laughs> from the north that is strong. <laughs> my favorite too. It's it's like my the first thing I'll order when I walk into a bar is uh, to drink would be like a, a you know a Pacharan. It's a, I just love it. You know, then I'll eat something, drink some more, and then close with a Pacharan too. So <laughs> beginning and closing. You're a total Spaniard. Yeah, <laughs> thanks. I, what a compliment. <laughs> Okay, where can we find the book? Uh, I know for sure we can find it on Amazon, but is there any physical store, any other place? Yeah, that's a difficult question. Many many people online, particularly in social media and Facebook and stuff, have asked, uh, friends in Spain have said, where can we get the book? Now, the, the publisher ships, in, the publisher's having a sale. Uh, the book has a, a heavy price tag for two reasons uh, one is um, it's a monograph so it's it's a fairly academic work mm -hmm. and uh, or it, its origins were fairly academic and so as an academic book it's already in a higher price point than a mass market so it so whereas a mass market on the subject would be 30 this is already up 20 dollars more than that for example and then Elena when you when you combine into this equation, that the main buyer of uh, books like this for the first year is is libraries. Libraries buy the book. In fact, that's the biggest buyer right now. When I go to the World Catalog and I see all the universities in the, all over the country that are buying the book, mm -hmm. this, this, now, of course, those universities are either use state funds or private funds, depending on whether they're a public or private university. So that also goes into figuring the price point. So it's kind of like a textbook in, in many ways, or it could be even adopted as a textbook. So the, the manufacturer's suggested retail price in U.S. dollars is 75, which is not crazy, but it's expensive. Mm -hmm. uh, I've seen, for example, uh, An Antonio Rabal's book on the same subject was 65 English pounds. It's like wow. 90 some odd dollars when it came out. So it's it's not it's not that expensive, but it's expensive. And that's why Roman, throughout the entire summer, Roman is the publisher, has been offering it at 35% off, which brings mm -hmm. it down to about 40, 40-some-odd dollars, you know, $48. And that's uh, a bit, uh, you know, a lot more uh, digestible, I think, uh, to, to the average buyer. And they do ship internationally, and that sale is still going on. I think it ends in a few days, though. It's, it's, it's just until the end of August. And, uh, of course, it can be bought on Amazon, and there are other sellers. But in terms of an actual bookstore, you know, the way that the brick-and-mortar bookstores here in the United States has been going, they less and less and less, um, you know, board, we had a huge, huge uh, bookstore here in the United States called Borders Books, Borders, B-O-R-D-E-R-S, Borders Books, which were in every state. They closed. And, and of course, Barnes and Noble, our other major reseller of books, They, they have closed many stores as well because of things like Amazon and eBay and Half.com and stuff. So I, I don't know any, any, but any book reseller, you know, any bookstore in Madrid or anywhere could certainly order copies of it. Mm -hmm. They just have to contact Roman, R-O-W-M-A-N, Roman and Littlefield, and find out how to place a purchase order. Okay, that would be great. Um... Are you working on a new book nowadays? That's a good question. Um, 
If I were to be working on a book, a sec- uh, and I have been doing some baby research, <laughs> <laughs> it, um, I mentioned a few minutes ago that uh, I, I, for this book on Jess Franco that I wrote about Jess's crimis, you know, his, his um, criminal films, and I, I'm very tempted to use the exact same methodology, travel to... Berlin to the National Film Archives in Berlin and set up interviews with uh, key personnel, directors, actors, technicians, and historians and journalists. And I'd like to do the same type of book on the German Krimi. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is this would be my next project. Mm-hmm. So it would re- it would necessitate travel to Germany, uh, doing some interviews, and then basically doing the same the same methodology. I would look at the the CCC and the as well as the Rialto Edgar Wallace criminal films that came out of uh, Germany uh, in the um, post World War Two years from you know basically 1958 to 1973. Oddly, the exact same years that that mirror Hammer films in England. <laughs> so. Um, that would be my next book, Elena, and, and and I know that many people I've spoken to think that a a, um, a book length um, sort of a, what's the word I'm looking for a book length study on the subject of the Krimi. There's certainly enough films. Holy mm-hmm. cow! There's there's a lot of films to look at. Uh, they would love it. They'd like to see it. And mm-hmm. if they and, and so they said, if you do it, if you tack it with the same same methods you did with the Spanish horror film, it's certainly something that we'd like to see, and so that would probably be the next book, but, you know, when you finish a book, two things happen. One, you have, like, uh, a mother's sort of postpartum depression. <laughs> uh, you you feel sad that your baby is, is done and, and out in the world, you know, and, uh, and, and you can't even think about having another. Like, I'm not having another baby, you know. That's not now. I just I just gave birth to one, so no more, uh, at least for a little while. And then shortly after that, you're like, I miss writing. So, <laughs> so you, uh, you know, these two things happen. You say, no more, my head is bleeding, I've done enough writing. But then shortly after that, you miss you miss the pressure and the fun and the, the curiosity of the research. And, you know, it's... Uh, it's it's a very rewarding experience. Obviously, as you know, it's a lot of hard work, yeah. and it, it's a lot of dedication, uh, especially the last you know mile or two of the marathon when you're dealing with the publisher and trying to just get everything just just right. You know, mm-hmm. uh, things like compiling an index. You know, this is this is a that's a that's a labor intensive <laughs> intensive uh, uh, thing to do, but you're just trying to cross the finish line. And maintain your sanity, and uh, I'm I'm so happy and thrilled that you've had me on the show, um, and I'm glad you really en- enjoyed the book too, and and that uh, your compliments to it uh, mean a great deal to me because, like I said, largely writing in a, in a in a vacuum, and you just don't know how the book is being received. Um, last question: As everybody knows, that I'm a junk TV addict. <laughs> Have you ever been to Hardcore Pound? You know, you are from Detroit, Michigan. You don't know what I'm talking about. <laughs> Hardcore what? There is a TV show that is called Hardcore Pound. Okay. It's about a pound show, uh, shop, sorry, 
that is uh, in Mile 8, Detroit, Michigan. <laughs> where, is this, where is this show from? Is it, is it in Spain? Is it... Yeah, it's an American show, and nowadays it's broadcast uh, on a Spanish TV channel. <laughs> well, 8 Mile is... Okay, so I live at 15 Mile. 8 Mile is 7 miles from me. Uh, it's the, you know, it's the, the border between the, the suburbs and the city of Detroit. And um, so I know Eight Mile very well. My grandfather's office was on Eight Mile when I was growing when I was growing up. Um, I don't know this show. I'm often very curious about the product that the United States exports. When I'm in Europe and I look at some, now I'm not saying hardcore punk because it sounds to me like you really like the show. But (laughs) sometimes you're in Brussels and you put on the you're in a hotel and you put on the TV and you're like. What the hell are we doing exporting this show? This show, and I mean, whatever the show is, is a really, really, really horrible show. And you're like, yes, this is exactly how I want the Belgian people to think of the United States. You know, so I don't know the show. I'm going to look it up, though. Um, have to. Why don't I know the show? Is it? It's sort of a reality TV thing. Yeah. Hardcore punk. Yeah, it's live in a in that pawn shop. In the pawn shop. Oh, the pawn shop, the pawn shop. Okay. Pawn shop. Sorry, I'm a phonetics. <laughs> okay, no, pawn shop, where they're selling things. Yeah. Okay, used, used items. Yeah, uh, <laughs> <laughs> okay, thank you very much, Nicolas, for being part, part of the show. It's my pleasure. I hope to talk to you soon again. And I wish you a look of a lot of luck with the, with the book, you know. As we say in Spanish, mucha mierda. <laughs> and, and whenever you want, you can come again. Thanks a lot, Nicolas. My Bye. Oh.